Hatchett. My name's Tim, and I'm one of the uh, leaders here at the Vine Church. So this morning, as many of you are aware, we'll carry on our series on the book of Hebrews. And we've been going through this series for probably about a month now. And uh, we're going to be doing it right up to the end of August. And as Paul said last week, uh, I'm very similar that Hebrews is one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's all about Jesus is greater. And it goes through different Bible characters. It goes through uh, some of the great prophets. It goes through Abraham and Moses. And it talks about the angels. And it says, you know, all these people that you were so looked to, you know, they were like celebrities in the Jewish world. Uh, they are nothing compared to Jesus. And if you just think about that for a moment, imagine growing up, learning specifically the first five books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and you knew it off by heart, and you know you knew the laws and the rules, and then you, 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 you meet with Jesus, you find Jesus, and you have a relationship with Jesus, and, and then you find out that actually Jesus is greater than any of these. You know, for them, it's quite a hard thing to grasp in many ways as a Jewish person uh, uh, turning to Christianity. The whole book points towards Jesus. And it says in any situation in life, good or bad, in, in anything that happens to us, Jesus is supreme. And it challenges us. There's two main challenges. To elevate Jesus as more superior in our lives, but also to stay faithful towards Jesus for the whole of our lives. And this morning, I'm going to be carrying on and looking at chapter 5. So if you've got a Bible, uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. The scripture will also be on the screen. And uh, we're going to be starting at verse 5. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5. This morning, I want to speak to you upon the subject of Jesus is greater than our suffering. Jesus is greater than our suffering. Here we go. Chapter 5, verse 5. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I've become your father. He says in another place, you are the priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers, petitions with fragrant cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect. He became the, so the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. I want to start off this morning by asking you a very simple, but I believe powerful question. And the question is this. If all things in your life were stripped away, would Jesus be enough? If all things, money, your bank balance went to zero tomorrow, family, your health, you had to move out your house and 
you went and squatted with someone else, social surfing, or you moved into a, uh, a rented property or whatever that looks like. Uh, you lost your job. You, you have no longer got a car. You're reliant on walking with two legs or scootering, whatever you take your fancy. Would Jesus be enough? I think most of us would be like, of course, Tim. You know, well, that's why we're here. But would he really be enough? See, a few weeks ago, I spoke upon about the high priest. And the high priest's job, uh, you could say he worked one day a year. Often people say I work one day a week, but the high priest's job worked one day a year. So that's even less. Uh, but the high priest's job, that was meant to be a funny pun, by the way. Um, the high priest's job, his day of the year was the day of atonement. And the day of atonement, he would go and take some animals to sacrifice on, for himself and for the behalf of the people. So he would, he would enter into the uh, temple and he would go in and the first thing he would do is sacrifice an animal, a goat or a bull. And that was for his own sin and his fellow priest's sin. Uh, and then once he's done that, he could enter into the holies of holies and he could uh, go through the curtain. Uh, and there was the Ark of the Covenant where the presence of God dwelled. And he would sacrifice again a, uh, a goat or bull or many animals. Uh, on behalf of the people. But he had to sacrifice before he entered through that curtain uh, an animal so that he could be pure and holy because he was about to enter a place where the presence of God dwelled and it was a perfect place. It was the most holiest place and it was where God dwelled and where God dwells there can be no sin. So he had to see a sacrifice done uh, for himself first. But the thing is, our spiritual condition is no different from the Old Testament. The sinfulness of men and the holiness of God are still polar opposites. And the difference is not that God changed the rules requiring atonement or death. But instead, as it was foretold by the prophet, that he would send his son to be the perfect and final sacrifice. And this is why Hebrews tells us that he became the great high priest. We no longer need the high priest. So the scripture says, in the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And then it says in another place, you are, you, you, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. See, I want to do this backwards for a moment, so go with me on this. I want to start with this point. He says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What is it with Melchizedek? This is the first time in the New Testament you've heard this name. If you're reading this book alone, you'll be like, who is Melchizedek? Why is Melchizedek just suddenly become on the scene? You know, wh what's, what's with him? Who is he about? You know, for me personally, I think Melchizedek is a great name. I would happily name my child Melchizedek. You know, Mel Melchizedek, come here. Name me, name me one physical appearance we get of Melchizedek in the Bible. And we get it from Genesis chapter 12, verse 4. And Abraham sees Melchizedek. Abraham, who's, who's taken a small army of trained servants to go and rescue Lot from four kings that are killing him and many other prisoners. And he takes, Abraham takes a small army and uh, they rescue Lot. And then on his way back, he bumps into this priest called Melchizedek. 
And his response is he gives 10% of everything he owes to Melchizedek. Everything. But what is odd about Melchizedek is this. See, in Genesis, after the fall, after Adam and Eve sinned, everyone, well, mostly every single main character we find in the Bible, they have been listed that they have were born, they had this many children, and then they died. So like it says for Noah, Noah was born, he had so many children, he lived for this many years, and he died. And it says after, again and again and again, because Genesis is a genealogical book, and this what it, that's one of its purposes. But Melchizedek is one, of, is one of the main characters in the Bible where we do not find a genealogy for him in Genesis. So that makes us think, you know, is he a real character? But we know he's a real character because the book of Hebrews refer back to him and people met him. He was a real king and he had a real kingdom. See, his name is Melchizedek. If you split up his name, Malachus, which means king, and Zedek means right or righteousness. See, Melchizedek was a king of right or a king of righteousness. But this is more. Which kingdom did he rule over? Well, he ruled over the king of Shalom, which it is rooted in the same word as Shalom, which means peace. So Melchizedek, he is the king of right, of righteousness, and he's the kingdom of peace. See, the, pre- the book of Hebrews points to Melchizedek as a type of Christ. He's not in the priest order of the Levitical order. Because in the Old Testament, are you with me on this? You following me? In the Old Testament, uh, to be a great high priest, to be a high priest, sorry, it, you had to be of the Levitical order. But Melchizedek wasn't of that order. Or was Jesus. See, Jesus was of a different order. He didn't do his work inside an earthly tabernacle, but he did it in heavenly realms. And the thing with Jesus, he had no beginning and no end like Melchizedek. There's no record of his beginning and end. So when, when, when the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek, for them they're thinking that Jesus is the king of righteousness, he's bringing a kingdom of peace, And he's got no beginning and no end. This is our Jesus. See, Jesus Christ is the one that conquered sin and death. He's the one who brings righteousness and a kingdom of peace. He is is the great high priest. See, the priesthood of Melchizedek was good, but Jesus is better. And now we know that Jesus is the great high priest sits at the right hand of the Father, making prayers and intercession on our behalf. Jesus is in the form of Melchizedek. The next point it says is this. Christ did not take himself the glory of becoming the high priest, but God said to you, you are my son, today I've become your father. See, this is the time in the book where I think, what is going on here again? You are my son, today you've become my father. Father. This is an interesting thing because if you really think about it, why is he saying, today you've become my father? I thought 
that God was always Jesus' father and Jesus was always the son of God. But he says today, it's, it's like me saying to, to Freddie, who's seven, and Joel, who's one, you know, um, today you've become my father. You know, you've done well in my sight. You've now, sorry, not you've become my father. That's the wrong way around. You've become my son. Why is he saying that, you know, today you've become, uh, my, my, I've become your father, you are my son. It's just weird that this morning we were, we were having uh, breakfast and, um, well, me and Joel were having breakfast together at this 7.30 this morning. We're eating some Weetabix and uh, we, uh, we were running a bit late and it was like 7.30 and I was saying to Joel, you know, Joel, just eat up, eat up. So I was feeding him, but he wouldn't want to eat it. And then um, he points at me and goes, eat it, eat it. He's just starting to speak. And then he says, daddy, da-da-da-da-da. And obviously two things, he's either learning to speak English or he's got a heavenly spiritual language. I'll go for the second one. But, probably not though. But it's that point I said to him because he said, daddy, da-da-da-da. I said, oh yes, today you've become my son and I've become your father. No, he was my son from the very beginning. So why does the writer write this? Why, what is the point of him saying this? And I love this because he literally thinks to himself, the writer here, Tim, I've got this one sorted. And he explains to us, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, it says in scripture, he offered up prayers and petitions with fragrant cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. He was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and was made perfect and became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. See, Jesus was a lot like us, or should I say Jesus, it's I say that we are a lot like Jesus. He offered prayers and petitions, and he cried throughout his life. But Jesus needed to learn obedience through sorrow. And because he learned obedience through sorrow, he truly became his son. That's what the, the, the Bible says. Because he learned obedience through sorrow, he truly became his son. See, some of us in this room are going through battles and trials, sicknesses, family breakdowns. You know, you're going through emotional hurt. You're going uncertainties, worries, and fears. You know, and probably every single one of us have got, will tick one of those, at least one of those things. That's me. And Jesus, he emphasizes how we feel right now. Because he walked through sorrow. Because it was an act of obedience. Jesus, he understands and feels. But there's an upside of sorrow. See, sorrow can be good for your soul. It can uncover hidden depths in ourselves and in God. Sorrow causes us to think earnestly about ourselves. It makes us ponder on our motives, our intentions, and our interests. We get to know ourselves like we've never known before when we go through sorrow or suffering. But sorrow also helps us to see God as we've never seen him before. Job he says this in Job chapter 42, verse 5. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. 
Job, you know, everything of his life got stripped away. You know, he, he truly experienced that question at the beginning, if, all you, if everything got stripped away. He truly experienced that. And he said, you know, I've heard of you, but now I've experienced you because he went through so much so sorrow and suffering in his life. And he's like, I've never, he goes, I experienced you in a different way. James 1, 2 to 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. See, this verse is saying the same thing. It's saying as you go through trials of many kinds, it will your faith will produce perseverance and it says you'll become mature and complete it's the same thing because the Hebrews verse is saying that Jesus was complete when he went through suffering and he learned obedience and he became the son of God James is saying the same thing when we face suffering and, and sorrow and pain actually it is the work of God to make us complete see Jesus has walked a life a lot like every single one of us. But for him, he was not just a spectator sitting on his throne. For Jesus, he could have done this, right? He could have come in a royal palace. He could have still prayed for the sick. He could have still seen miracles, but he would have gone home to his palace and all his servants. You know, he could have done that. But actually, Jesus needed to suffer in this world to, to truly become a son. Even the weakest among us can participate in sports, but only the strongest among us can survive as spectators. See, this is the thing. According to heart specialists, when we become a spectator rather than a participant, the wrong things go up and the wrong things come down. So, for example, if you were an athlete and you've been doing, you know, uh, long distance running year after year, year after year, and you suddenly stop, what would happen is, your, the wrong things will go up and the wrong things go down. For example, the things that will go up would be your body weight, your blood pressure, your heart rate, your cholesterol. The things that will go down would be your vital capacity, your oxygen consumption, your flexibility, your stamina, your strength will go down. See, being an onlooker in the Christian living is also risky. The wrong things go up and the wrong things go down. The things, that go, uh, the things that go up, if you're an onlooker, is criticism, discouragement, disillusionment, uh, boredom. But the things that go up when you are a participant in the Christian faith is sensitivity to sin, the needs of others, receptive to the word of God. They all go up when you are a participant. See, this is the thing. There's a sure thing of hearing someone else's testimony. And when they've said, oh, I was going through this situation, but God delivered me. There's, there's an excitement that we can catch. But there's nothing like it when you have your own testimony to say, God did this in my life. Or God did this in my family's life. And you, you've gone through it. There's no substitute of piling up your own experiences of faith. And using your God-given abilities, 
for the benefit of others. See, if we are to be maturing and growing as, as growing stronger as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to venture out in faith, and that's risky. But remember, it's far greater risk to be only a spectator. 1 Peter 5, verse 6 to 11 says this, Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be so reminded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the whole, throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So this is what Jesus did. He humbled himself. He humbled himself to suffer uh, throughout his life on earth. And then it says, cast on your anxieties. Don't keep your anxieties to yourself. That's what it's saying. You know, don't be greedy. You're being greedy when you're keeping them to yourself. I don't know if you remember a couple of months ago, I spoke about the box. And actually putting our anxieties, not in our God box, but in an anxiety box. Don't be greedy with your anxieties. Don't keep them to yourself. And then it says, the devil is like a lion. He's trying to get you down and take you off the path. And often when we go through suffering and pain and hurt, you know, the devil wants to push it even more. He's roaring around, seeking someone to devour. But it says he will restore us and confirm us and strengthen us and establish us. He will do that. That is a promise. But the next thing is, it talks about a little while. You have suffered a little while. Little while is a bit ambiguous, isn't it? I love this. What is a little while, God? Well, only God knows. Only God knows. You know, I can't say, you know, it's a day. None of us can say, oh, it's going to be a week or a month. We're going to go through a hard time in our lives. We don't know. But what we do know is the things that it says. He will restore and, confer, uh, and uh, confirm and strengthen, establish you. See, this is an interesting thought. For Jesus truly to be the son, did he need to learn obedience through submission, through suffering? That's what the text is applying. It said that he was even made perfect, or a better way of saying it, he was made complete. See, Jesus, like I said, could be in his palace. He could pray for people. He could, he could heal the sick. But he needed to learn suffering to be complete and for him to be able to say that he emphasizes with us. So we need to learn obedience through suffering. So the father says, today I am your father. I'll leave that one with you. Someone once said, it's better to go with difficulty to heaven than to ease with hell. But I love it because the writer writes the antidote of our sufferings. He, he literally says it for us. He puts it there. He says the antidote to the suffering is prayer. That's what you're going to take you through your suffering time. It's talking to 
God. And he said, this is what Jesus did. He cried in his prayer. He went to the mountainside in his prayer. He went to, he prayed with his disciples. He did all sorts of praying, but he prayed. And through every suffering, even when he was going to go to the cross, he met with, you know, a couple of his disciples and prayed. What's going to take us through our suffering isn't, uh, isn't a lot of things, but what it is, it is prayer. Martin Luther said, to be a Christian without prayer is more impossible than to be alive without breathing. It's crazy. To be a Christian without prayer is more impossible. How is your prayer life? Because that will take you through your suffering and your trials and your difficulties in this life. See, this quote is like Martin Luther literally punching us and saying, what is your faith like? What is your Christian life? Look at your prayer life. See, this is what I'm convinced of. This is it, right? And it's for me and it's for us. When we pray regularly, irregular things happen on a regular basis. When we pray regularly, irregular things happen on a regular basis. Often, uh, you know, Christianity and the church, you know, across the world is that something happens and our prayer life goes up. And then, and then it slows down a bit. Or it might be the opposite way around for you. You know, when life is good, your prayer life is good. And when life is rubbish, you're not that good at prayer. So it goes in ups and downs. But actually, those who pray regularly will see irregular things happen on a regular basis. And if you're facing trials and hurdles and suffering, and I'm sure it's all of us in this room because life is difficult in different ways. The Bible says this, Romans 8, 28. We know that all things God works for good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. We know in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. See, this is really good news for us, because if you love God and follow God, what you're going through, sorry to say this, is good for you. That's what it's saying. It is good for you and your faith and your whole life. I'm not just talking about your Christian life. I'm talking about your family life, your work life. What you're going through, if you love God and follow him with your heart, is good for you. And that is a real hard pill to chew on, isn't it? You know, it is a real hard pill. But the good news is God is with us all the way. And as 1 Peter says, he will confirm, establish, and strengthen us. He will take us through this. And he's saying today that you are my son and my daughter. Each one of us, we are his sons and daughters today. He says we go through suffering and trials. As we be obedient to his word, he says this, you are my son and uh, and daughter, like he said uh, to Jesus. I want you to... I hope that you walk away with this. Actually, suffering is a way that God uses to to change us and transform us. Suffering, in many ways, is necessary for the Christian faith. And one thing that will keep you going is your prayer life. Keep praying, keep praying, keep praying. And I expect many of us have got testimonies in this room of where we've been persistent in prayer, which has changed things in our lives and the people around us' lives. But don't stop. That will take you through what you're going through. And then Jesus, uh, Father God says, you have become my son and you have become my 
daughter. Let us pray. Father God, help us, Lord God. Help us in the suffering, the trials, and the battles, whether that is our personal ones, whether that is family, at work, finances, the things that are, go, that are really hard at the moment. We, we can't see any outcome. We don't know how, a li- how long a little while is. But I pray there'll be a day where you do establish us. Lord God, I pray that you'll help each one of us to keep praying. That's what you call, that's what the word says. Help us to keep praying and knowing that as we go through this in obedience, you are saying, I love you, my son and daughter. Like you said to Jesus as he walked with his disciples. Thank you, Lord God.